0: Good morning and welcome to church. Uh, Yeah, elementary school kids are going to head out and have their own party. See ya. All right. Open up to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to start reading there. And uh, that is what we're going to do first this morning. So once you you get to Matthew 21, go ahead and stand up for the reading of the Word of God this morning. Matthew 21. We're going to read 17 verses. I'd say it's probably an average chunk, just so your expectations are okay. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So you can just start using that in every store you go walk into. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yep. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. We are continuing our uh, biblical formation course that we have been in for uh, pretty much all of this first quarter of the year where we are talking together. How do we be a people who repent from a self-centered worldview and be reformed from a self-centered faith? We've discussed so far different sections as we've gone through this. So if you're just joining us, we've covered a lot of ground. You are coming to the fourth quarter of the game, but that's okay, you're still welcome here. And it's all online, so you can go get caught up. How easy is that? Speaking of fourth quarter... Slash second half sick and bears. Come on, baby. Come on. Sick and bears. <laughs> we have discussed uh, over our time together how to be biblically formed in the way that we understand creation, humanity, brokenness, and today we start our last section of biblical formation. The last section of salvation. How do we be biblically formed in the way we understand salvation? We've been in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 for like the last 11 weeks or so, and we've been talking about how Genesis 1 through 3 lays for us the foundations of how do we, what is the Bible, how do we read the Bible, how do we understand the Bible, how do we hear God and know God through the Bible, and how do we understand God, how do we understand ourselves, how do we understand the world that we live in. These, these three chapters are, have proved to be very important for us. These chapters tell us about God's original ideals for creation and then our rejection of those ideals and brokenness of those ideals as we chose sin. And at the end of Genesis 3, we are left both in need but also full of hope for salvation. As we come to the end of chapter 3, I want to read it to you. Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. As we wrap up these three chapters we've spent so much time in over these last 11 weeks, it says this, it closes in this way. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's not the way you want the movie to end, huh? We see from the beginning, as we've discussed over biblical formation and discussed more in depth a couple of weeks ago, that God is a God who comes even even in the beginning. God is the God who comes close and, and pursues us and even pays our debts and covers us when we choose to reject Him. Do you remember talking about that a few weeks ago being reintroduced to our first impression of God? So we talked about how, how He is the God who pursues and yet the end of Genesis 3 tells us, that God still cast them out of the garden of Eden. If you're like me, then you may be wondering, well, if he's the God who pursues, he covers us when we try to sow our fig leaves together. He pursues us when we try to hide behind our trees. Are you remembering that part? If, if, he, if that is the God who we are talking about here, why did he still kick them out of the garden? Well, the good news is we actually learn why right here in verse Verse 22. When God is saying, behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. And now we get the explanation. Why is it that God has to kick them out of the garden? He says, he, he, it sounds, it's almost like God is like thinking out loud as he says this. He says, now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. And we get a hyphen. If you look at the original language in the Hebrew, it's, it's like legitimately, it's an incomplete sentence. It's like God is thinking out loud and he's, he's expressing out loud, now the consequences, here's what has to happen now. Now that man is sinful, the worst thing that could possibly happen is that he now also reach out his hand and eat of the tree of life and live forever like this. And so God's speaking, he's sharing, okay, here, I told you that when you ate of this, the, the day you ate of this, you would surely die, and now you've eaten from it, and, and now I'm, I'm telling you what has to happen now, and the hyphen is like this break in the language, like an unfinished sentence as we begin to get a first taste of what must now happen, of what it means that we have chosen to reject in God. See, see in this hyphen, there's, there's a lot in this hyphen. There's a lot in this hyphen. See, what's in the hyphen is all that God foreknew before the foundations of the earth in his sovereignty, and now it is, now it is coming to pass in time and space on the earth. He knows. He knows now. He knows that he cannot be in relationship with his imagers that he has created. He knows they cannot do anything about it. They have damned themselves to death in judgment and he knows that now he must kick them out of his temple, his holy city, his dwelling place, where heaven and earth overlap, where they were designed to partner with him for his kingdom. They have now aligned themselves with the spiritual rebels to build their own kingdom. God knows all of this. And God also knows that God is love. And he knows that he loves the world so much that he is going to send his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but be born again and partake of his son's flesh and blood and eat of the fruit of the tree of life and thus have the eternal life that each person was made for. God knows all of this and now God knows he knows all of this as he's speaking Genesis 3, 22. This is all what's happening in the hyphen now. Oh, lest he eat of the tree of the life and live forever. God knows it's going to be a long road. He knows it's going to cost him himself. He knows it's going to hurt. He knows he's going to be misunderstood for it. He knows not everyone will even receive it. And he knows even despite all of this, he's still going to do all of it anyways. And so here at the doorway of Eden, as God ushers them out, all that can be said is the silent exhale of an unfinished sentence. Adam and Eve are sent Away from Eden, away from the temple of God, the city of God, the house of God. And they walk out the eastern gate. And obviously this leads us to Matthew 21 where Jesus seems to magically know where some donkeys are and rides one that hasn't been ridden before, clearly. Everything I've said so far is really just a long introduction to the message that I want to share with you this morning in part one of our salvation section of biblical formation and title of part one is, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We are growing, we are aiming to grow as biblically formed Christians Through this series and and therefore we need to understand that the Bible is not primarily communicating to us the Bible between that hyphen and Matthew 21 all that's caught up in between there. The Bible is not primarily telling us in all of that what we need in order to be saved from the sin that cast us out of Eden the law that I need the willpower that I need, the discipline that I need, the good works that I need. What the Bible is, is one cohesive revelation about who we need. Who we need to save us from our sins. The only reason that anything that Jesus did matters is because of who Jesus is. This text that we always read on Palm Sunday you've ever been in church on Palm Sunday before, you've read Matthew 21, I'm sure of it. In this text that we read, the, the triumphal entry as it is called, it is not just a random Bible story about something Jesus did. This is an intentional and masterful revelation of who Jesus is. In verse 10, as we read, it says all of Jerusalem is stirred up as Jesus comes riding through the town and everyone's looking around and they're like, who is this? Who is, who is Jesus? You're living in a world that asks you that question a lot, is challenging you with that question a lot. And if you are going to stand in the cultural wind and waves that are hammering you now and are only going to increase the things that you are getting hit with, if you're going to stand in all of that, then you need to know more than just a few things about what Jesus did. You need to know who Jesus is. A few weeks ago, we asked the question and discussed the question, who is God? And we aimed to come to the Bible to let him answer that question for himself. Similarly, this morning, I invite you to join both ancient Jerusalem and the current world that you are living in and ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is this? And as we spend the rest of our few moments together this morning, I wanna to look to him And give him a chance to answer that question for himself. I want to break up our text this morning into four different chunks as we go through it. And talk about four different revelations that Jesus gives him about himself through this story. The first section is the preparation for the ride. Jordan put a lot of work into these slides this morning, so you better take notes. The preparation for the ride, Jesus reveals to us that he is the sovereign king, the sovereign king. We are told in verse four and five of our text this morning that what we read about took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, this is a quote from the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It doesn't give us a whole lot of descriptions. It says some prophet. So where does this come from? It comes, we're doing some Bible study this morning too, and I'm excited about it. So it comes from uh, the prophet Zechariah in chapter nine, verse nine, this may sound familiar. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew 21 wasn't lying. That's a good quote. That's pretty close. It's nice. So Zechariah 9 gives this prophecy about the coming king that everybody was waiting for in Jerusalem. The crowd that day in Jerusalem and the original audience that the book of Matthew was written to, they all know this part of Zechariah. They all know this prophecy. And The prophecy isn't just one verse long. It's actually all of Zechariah chapters 9 through 14 is one big prophecy about the king that they should be looking for. And so as they gathered that day in Jerusalem, they gathered because they were waiting for this promised king. The prophecy of Zechariah 9 through 14 is split up into kind of two different halves. The first is chapters 9 through 11. Chapter 9 starts out telling us who is he? Who is this king that is coming? Verse 1 says, For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. He's got an eye on everything. So it's saying this king is sovereign. He alone is sovereign and he has an eye on all mankind. This is who is coming. Verse eight says, then I will, camp, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. He is sovereign over all the nations and everyone, including every oppressor, answers to him. He is the one who brings righteous judgment in all the earth. Chapter 9, 9, we already read. It begins to explain this coming king who will save his people. We've learned in the first few verses that we should know about him, that he is sovereign. Chapter 9 ends with this verse about this sovereign king. For how great is his goodness. How great is this sovereign king's goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young man flourish and new wine the young women. What do you make with grain? Not a trick question. Bread. This sovereign king, great is his goodness, great in his beauty. He's bringing bread and wine for all people to flourish. The totality of Zechariah chapters 9 through 11 promise us a sovereign king and a shepherd sent to lift up the people who comes riding on a donkey, who gives bread and wine for all men and women to flourish. But it also tells us in the end, this sovereign king and shepherd is rejected for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 12 through 14, the second half of our prophecy that is quoted and referenced in Matthew 21. Chapter 12, it tells us that the Lord promises that this king himself, that the Lord himself will be seen by his people and pierced by his people. Leads into chapter 13, that promises on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And chapter 14 finishes up, summarized saying the sovereign king The shepherd given, who brings the bread and the wine, who is sold for 30 pieces of silver, who is seen by the people, who is pierced by the people in the end after all of it will be lifted up high among the nations. As you read your New Testament and you find different quotes from the Old Testament, Usually what happens is there's just a phrase or maybe one sentence or a verse is quoted at a time, but the way that the culture worked is when you quoted one part, you were, you were talking about the whole thing. So Matthew 21 isn't just saying, he did all this to fulfill the part of the donkey, like the donkey part, that's the key verse here. Matthew 21, one through six is, is not about a party trick where Jesus knew where some donkeys were And somehow told his disciples to steal a couple of them. And they got away with it. (laughs) Matthew 21, 1 through 6 is Jesus announcing to everyone that he is not just a carpenter from Nazareth, he reigns over all creation. He is the judge of all the nations. He is the good shepherd that is promised. And though he will be pierced and rejected by his people, he is the sovereign king who comes in righteousness and reigns in all the earth. The second section of our text this morning is the triumphal entry where Jesus reveals to us that he is the Messiah who brings salvation. As he comes riding into the city, people gather around, throw down their cloaks and palm branches, and they start shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These words that everybody's shouting in the streets, they're not just some random spontaneous phrases that they decided to shout that day. They are intentional and they are specific and they come straight from the Bible. From Psalm 118, we began our service reading some of these verses today. Again, in quoting some of Psalm 118, they're referencing something so much bigger. Not actually just Psalm 118, but actually Psalms 113 through 118 are a group of Psalms that were called the Hallel Psalms. They were songs that were sung at all the the major festivals that they would have together. And they were gathered in Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover, the biggest festival of all. So you can think of these songs, Psalms 113 through 118. They would have been known in in, in a similar way to where, like, you know, Christmas hymns are known by everybody, even people who don't go to church. You know, you, you go to the mall, or you used to go to the mall back before, you know, you go to stores or, I don't know what, you know. Anyways, you used to go out in public, remember? <laughs> and around Christmas time, you hear these songs and it's, they're singing about Jesus explicitly, you know? And you're like, I didn't think this was allowed. But for some reason at Christmas it is and everybody does it, you know what I'm saying? These songs are the same way. Everybody would have just known this stuff. You, you knew these songs and, and they came gathered that day. They came into the city. Everybody who came into the city that day came ready to sing this song, but just not for this reason. They came ready to sing it again in anticipation, again. They weren't ready to come and sing it in celebration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's, it's part of a poem or, or, or it's like lyrics to a song. And so I, I, just, I just wanna read you some of the rest of the song so that you understand what they're saying about Jesus what is being declared, what Jesus is receiving and affirming about himself. Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. We're not gonna read, don't worry, 113 through 118. I just wanna read you a a bit of the song that they sang over Jesus that day. Psalm 19 starts out as a cry for righteousness. says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. It starts out as a cry of righteousness. Oh, let me come through the gates of righteousness. I want to be in the presence of the Lord and worship him. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I don't know if you remember, but in John 10, 9, what did Jesus say? I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Not only is this song celebrating that God has answered them, God himself has become their salvation. He didn't just send some salvation, he is salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This isn't just another day that the Lord has made. This is the day. We've been waiting for. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is a good day. Jesus is alive, he is good, and he is here. Save us, we pray, oh Lord. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Question. Who is the only one allowed to come in the name of the Lord? The Lord. Who who is the only one that you bless from the house of the Lord? The Lord himself. You don't come to church and start singing songs to somebody else. Right? The Lord is good and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. How prophetic. Up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Quite a song. And the city here is all this singing, all this shouting, all this coat-throwing business. And like we are here this morning asking the question, the people are looking around at each other, looking at those shouting, saying, who is this? Who is this that you're singing to? Who is this that you are shouting about? Who is this? This is the gate of righteousness through whom all may enter. This is the answer That we have been looking for. This is the stone that the builders have rejected, who has become the cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is Yahweh. This is the light of God. This is the Lamb of God to be bound as the final sacrifice on the altar. Who is this? This is the Messiah who brings salvation. In the third section of our text this morning, Jesus cleanses the temple and reveals himself as the divine Lord, fully God. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus quotes here again from two different prophets. First, from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56, verse seven. It says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And Jesus quotes again from Jeremiah seven, verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, Become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it. I've been watching, declares the Lord. Jesus organizes the theft of some donkeys, rides into town. The crowd goes crazy. The streets are a mess. Everybody's wondering who is this guy? And Jesus isn't satisfied with the mess he has created in the streets, with the people shouting, so he heads straight to the temple. He goes in and he decides to go crazy, flipping over tables, kicking people out, animals, birds, stuff flying everywhere. And in the aftermath of all of it, you can just imagine how everybody's responding to this. Like, okay, the streets are going nuts. He starts walking towards the temple and I're like, wait, we were just trying to like worship you. Where are you headed? Walks into the temple, just tears the whole place up. And I just feel like it probably, I mean, I'm imagining this, but I'm imagining that it went from utter chaotic shouting, screaming to borderline silence other than the animals as people's jaws hit the floor. And probably ask again, who is this? This. Comes in, tears the place up. Everybody's staring at him, mouths wide open. And in the awkwardness, he looks all of them in the eye, no hint of I'm sorry, and says emphatically, This is my house, this is my altar. This is called by my name and it's supposed to be for all people but all of you have made it a den of robbers and I've seen the whole thing. To put it lightly, Jesus isn't exactly allowed to do that. It's not something you do any reasonable person in that moment would have been thinking, I doubt any of them dared to speak quite yet. It's kind of an intense moment. But any reasonable person would have been thinking, um, this is God's temple. This is, this is God's house. This is, this is actually, this is the house of Yahweh. We, we don't call this Jesus's house all of this that you just tore up is actually set apart for the most high God. You know, the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. They gotta be thinking, Jesus, this is not your place. This is Yahweh's place. This is God's place. And Jesus is making it plain as day. Though he quoted the prophet, he is not another prophet. He is not another prophet speaking on behalf of God. He is God. And he has seen everything that they've been up to in his house. Jesus comes and in cleansing out the temple, Jesus declares to everybody, I am God. And he prepares himself as they just sang about him in Psalm 118, as God himself, he prepares to become their salvation as the final sacrifice to go on his altar. And he's also prophesying the destruction of this temple that was to come shortly so that he could build a new one, his church. And only God is allowed to do any of that. In the fourth section of our text this morning, and final section, the praise of the children, Jesus reveals himself as the son of David, fully man. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, the leaders were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what all these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Low-key insult. (laughs) Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. As divine Lord... Of the temple, Jesus is announcing that he is fully God. And as the saving son of David, he is announcing he is fully man. And that's good news because Hebrews chapter 2 tells us he had to be. He had to be fully man. Hebrews 2 verse 9 tells us this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And just in case you're wondering who we're talking about, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He had to be man to do that. He had to be God to do what he just did. He had to be man to do what he was about to do. He had to be sovereign king over all the nations. He had to be the Messiah who brings salvation. He had to be fully God so that he could establish his house. And he had to be fully man so that he could taste death on behalf of all of us. And finally, our text concludes with him leaving Jerusalem for Bethany, a small town on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And that's where we were told at the beginning in verse 1 where Jesus had just come from that morning. So Bethany, and Bethany is, is, is on the slope of the Mount of Olives. So, so Bethany and the Mount of Olives are, are in the same place. They're both, they're both east of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, as referenced in the Zechariah prophecy and in many other places, is often referred to as Zion, which means the city of God, the mountain of God, God's holy hill, where God would dwell with his people. After entering the city, Jesus went to the temple where God would meet with his people. This wasn't just a, a location, it was, it was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. Both Jerusalem and the temple, all through the Old Testament and in Matthew chapter 21, there They're not just places, they're types and shadows of Eden. The city of God, the temple of God, the mountain of God, where heaven and earth overlap and God dwells and partners with his people. Bethany and the Mount of Olives are both east of Jerusalem, which means Jesus came in that morning through the eastern gate. And that eastern gate had a name the mercy gate. Why is this a triumphal entry? It's not because of what Jesus did. Not just because of what Jesus did. It's because of who Jesus is. It's because of who Jesus is. Jesus, the sovereign king, the promised messiah, The divine Lord, the son of David, the second Adam, the fully man, fully God, redeemer, riding back into Eden, the city of God from the east, not as a rebel, but as a son. And with all authority in heaven and on earth, the cherubim must bow and make way, lay down their cloaks and wave their palm branches as he enters into the holy place. To cast out all the oppressors and manipulators and imposters so that he could make a way for those who had no way. And in doing all of this, prepare himself as the final sacrifice. The final covering to be put on the altar so that his house could be called a house of prayer for all people. He's making a way for the nations. Amen. As we repent from a self-centered worldview and are reformed from a self-centered faith, there are four things that we must take away from this if we're gonna have a biblically formed understanding of who Jesus is. You must take away that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of all people. And we must recognize him as such. There is no other response. There is salvation in no one else. No label, no status, no person, no government, no philosophy, no mindset, no selfishness, no circumstances. He is our King who comes. He is our King who comes, lowly riding on a donkey and if we want to share in his kingdom we must acknowledge him as Lord secondly Jesus is God's remedy for the ruin of the human race and we must look to him as the only source of all the healing that we need he alone is the answer to every problem, either in this life or in the life to come Those who trust in him will be made whole. In body, soul, and spirit. not understand everything that the Lord is doing at all times, but we must always follow Him with love and with devotion. And lastly, we must understand that it is only spiritual blindness that does not recognize Him. Your past experiences, any current questions, cultural momentum, religious frustrations, none of this changes who Jesus is none of these are good enough reasons to reject him for who he really is. If you do not recognize him, it is not because you are right about something that he is wrong about, it is because you are blind. Perfect equality for all people is only found in the presence of Jesus. As not just a nice man who rode on a donkey. He is God and He alone is the hope and redemption for all of humanity. He is Lord and Savior. He came into this world to suffer and die for our sins, to seek and to save the lost and adopt us as children and heirs into His kingdom. And apart from Him, there is no peace with God and there is no hope for peace in this world. This is who Jesus is. I want you to stand as we close this morning. I'm going to have our prayer team come up as we lift up our praise to Jesus. If you need prayer for anything in your life, there's no sense waiting any longer. Come and get the prayer that you need. You need to confess anything. If you need anybody to stand with you for something, if you need healing for anything, you need repentance for anything, whatever it is, do not stay where you are without responding to him this morning. Jesus, we love you, and we recognize you for who you really are. We lift up the holy name of Jesus. We thank you for being here this morning. And I ask right now that Holy Spirit, you would come as the spirit of revelation, and you would bring us to humility, and you would bring us into desperation, God, and forgive us for our arrogance and pride and distraction from running to other things. Lord, we come to you in your house this morning. Lord, we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.